0: Extraordinary Districts, a podcast about ordinary districts that get extraordinary results. Hi, this is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. Today, we're bringing you a discussion with some amazing experts that kicks off the second season of Extraordinary Districts. We held the discussion on October 8, 2019, before a live audience at the University of Illinois, Chicago, at an event co-hosted by the Education Trust and UIC's Center for Urban Education Leadership and its EDD program in Urban Education Leadership. It was supported by Overdeck Family Foundation and the Wallace Foundation. We hope you enjoy it. So I'm Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. We believe all children deserve a high quality education. We're here today in Chicago to kick off season two of the Extraordinary Districts podcast. I can't imagine a better panel to talk about district improvement. First, we have Nell Duke, a professor of language, literacy and culture at the University of Michigan. Her work focuses on early literacy development, particularly among children living in poverty She has authored, co-authored, and edited a slew of books about literacy, including the Research-Informed Classroom Book Series and a series of books on what not to do, including my favorite title, No More Taking Away Recess, and Other Problematic Discipline Practices. Um, Dr. Duke, thank you so much for coming.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Um, Ronald Ferguson is an MIT-trained economist who is on the faculty of Harvard's John F. Kennedy School of Government and is faculty director of the Achievement Gap Initiative at Harvard University. He co-founded Tripod Education Partners and he's been working with groups in a number of cities including some in Illinois to help inform parents of babies and toddlers about how they can support the academic achievement of their children he and journalist Tatcha Robertson the, recently co-authored The Formula, Unlocking the Secrets to Raising Highly Successful Children. For listeners of Extraordinary Districts, he was, he, he was featured in season one of, uh, in the episode on Lexington, Massachusetts. Thank you so much. Good to be here. And finally, we have Janice Jackson in her role as CEO of Chicago Public Schools. She is leading the efforts to improve academic achievement for more than 360,000 students. Dr. Jackson is a Chicago Public School person all the way, beginning in Head Start and continuing through her doctorate right here at the Urban Leadership Development Program of the University of Illinois Chicago. Woo woo! She began her career teaching at South High School and started a small school that was the first in Chicago to improve attendance, freshmen on track, and graduation rates in what educators classically call a challenging school. At the request of then-CEO Arnie Duncan, she then opened the much larger Westinghouse High School, where she mentored a whole slew of school leaders. After serving as the chief education officer for the city, she became the chief executive officer of Chicago Public Schools in December 2017. And I have to mention, brag really, she was also featured in season one of Extraordinary Districts in the episode on the improvement of Chicago Public Schools. Thank you so much for being here. Thank you so much for having me. So we're going to spend some time today talking about what I have found in the first two seasons of the uh, Extraordinary Districts podcast. But before we really dive into details, I want to play a tiny part of the interview I did with Dr. Jackson in the episode on Chicago in the first season. It's a very brief snippet. It was almost a throwaway line for her. But to me, it lays out the stakes of this conversation.
2: I really believe education is the best way to eradicate Poverty to get away from the violence to change that. Like we have to educate our children, we have to provide them with real alternatives.
0: As as I say, it's almost a throwaway line for you, but I mean, there are so many people who say we can't expect schools to educate children who live in poverty. That we really have to tackle and eradicate poverty first. You really have a different take.
2: Well, I mean, I think if you um, accept that poverty defines what a student is going to be able to do, you don't have people like me and other people represented in this room sitting in the spaces that they're in. And so what I... um, was trying to lift up in that statement was really the importance of understanding um, a student's socioeconomic background but not letting that define what you present them with. Um, I know later we're gonna talk a little bit about um, some of these districts that have been able to make uh, dramatic uh, changes and substantive changes. And I think one of the things or common themes that I heard throughout all of them is that people are leading with high quality education. They are leading with instruction and not kind of like programs or interventions that just situate the student as the problem, if you will, and something that needs to be fixed, but really leads with what I think a school system, public, private, or otherwise should be uh, primarily focused on, which is making sure that students have an opportunity to learn. And so through my time as a principal and also now in leadership roles, I've always prioritized learning and instruction first um, as a way in which to bring about the kind of change. I mean, and it really comes from a space where I believe everybody wants to learn, everybody wants um, a a good education and access to the American dream, however you define that. And I think if you lead with that, um, you just show up differently and the students um, that you serve respond differently and the teachers and the educators that work in the building with them behave differently if they know that the ultimate goal is to educate and not fix
0: students or fix societal problems. So, so this is going to be a conversation, and I'm wondering if uh, Dr. Ferguson, Dr. Duke, if you have right. thoughts.
3: Yeah, I'm, I, as you know, I'm an economist by training. I became an economist because I wanted to make people's lives better, which meant increasing their incomes, uh, at least partially. And uh, I got interested in education when a lot of us, as economists, discovered at the end of the 1980s that standardized reading and math scores predict most of the racially hourly earnings gap. Yep. <laughs> and so if we want to eradicate poverty, We gotta give kids the skills that they need to escape poverty, and I think why we're here today is that there are schools that are getting it done. Mm -hmm. There's schools that are hitting home runs with kids, so there are existence proofs for the idea. So so people have it backward, when they say we gotta fix poverty before we can fix poverty. (laughs)
1: And Just to add to that, um, I like that this series is really building on a pretty long tradition in education research, looking at highly effective schools and highly effective teachers. For example, in my area literacy, we have a lot of studies that look at teachers who consistently get better results with their kids than the teachers next door or down the hall, and what are they doing differently. Um, and then to take this up to the district level, I think is is really powerful, and I'm so glad the series does that.
0: Well, so, so it, I kind of... I'm not a researcher by training. I'm, you know, these are the scholars. I'm not the scholar, but I, I do think of myself as coming from a research tradition, which is that of Harvard researcher, Ronald Edmonds, who advised people to find schools with the outcomes you want to see, and then study them to figure out what they do differently from other schools. And that's what I'm trying to do in the, in the Extraordinary Districts podcast, only with districts rather than schools. And the outcome I'm looking for is either high achievement or rapid improvement in districts that serve children of color and children from low-income homes. And you know, you've kind of weighed in on this, Dr. Duke, but Dr. Ferguson, I was kind of wondering, like, is this a good way to operate? Is this ho- what we should be doing? or is this what I think some, some people, people would argue
3: you should be studying failure and <laughs> contrasting the, the schools that fail with the schools that succeed. But I mean, there's
0: a lot of research on failure. There is a, <laughs> a, there's, there is a
3: lot of research on failure. And I can tell you, I'd been working in schools a decade before I saw a great school. Okay? You were at the conference I convened with exemplary high schools. And there were those things in those schools I'd never seen. I'd never even known it was possible to do some of what they were doing. So I think you're basically, with this series, picking off the schools from the very top tail of the distribution, from the right end of the distribution to see what they do. And a lot of what they do can be done in other places. And so I think it's totally uh, a, a great thing to be doing.
2: Um- what I would add to that, I think that, um, and I remember reading some of your earlier work around, you know, school di- or individual schools proving that it could be done. But I think when you think about this from a district level, you have to bring into, uh, you have to bring systems thinking into the conversation and how do you make this change at a large scale across a variety of schools, communities, different circumstances and contexts? And one of the things that I would say in Chicago, we're definitely, I think, in this conversation because of the rapid improvement improvement, but we are not yet at the place where we can say our schools, all of our schools are operating at an optimal level or level that any of us in this room would agree is where we want to see our schools go. But with that said, I believe that this is a problem that has to be addressed over time and that it does take slow, sustained progress in order to get... To where we want to go and um, from a district perspective it really is about creating policies and structures and and expectations that are the same across the board for everybody and I know sometimes that's a controversial thing to say because we get into conversations around well the context here is different and these students have these circumstances and I believe in all of that I think I know those circumstances very well not only from my personal experience but from my professional lens. but I really believe that if, if we approach this with the same expectations, and that is not a throwaway line. I think if we really spend time unpacking what we mean when we say the same expectations, I think it challenges a lot of the practices that we have every day. Um, If all of us are being honest, we don't always approach every student with the same level of expectations. There are, you know, we, we are subject to all the same biases and you know, images that we get every single day about what students can and can't do. And so for our part um, in this discussion today, I'd like to just talk about some of the policies and systems that we've put in place um, that are universal don't cringe. I know some people hate that word, Um, but I think that some of those things have really helped to push conversations in places where they would not have happened if they were not universal policies. Um, And I'll give you one example, Uh, Learn, Plan, Succeed, which was the district's attempt to, not attempt where it's underway, um, but it was this really this proclamation that every student would graduate with a concrete post-secondary plan in their back pocket. Long sentence just to say we're gonna make sure that we still hold ourselves accountable for your success once you graduate, meaning we're gonna make sure you have a plan. And I remember being interviewed um, by a lot of reporters about that because people thought it was controversial because it was tied to graduation um, standards, or graduation requirements. And I remember the reporter listed off a a lot of policies and programs that we have here in CPS and basically said, are you trying to, uh, I guess, encourage or implement middle class values in this system? And I was really taken aback by that question because, to be honest, I didn't even know what they meant. I didn't know that that was a term that was used to mean so many other things, which I won't unpack in this discussion (laughs) right now. Um, but it really, at the, the at the core of it, what I heard is that why are you expecting low income, predominantly Black and Latino kids in Chicago to do what everybody else is doing throughout the United States? That's what I heard, and it really got me thinking about the things we put in place. How do we do that in a responsible way? How do we provide? Extra support so that students in um, marginalized communities have access to these things and can actually meet the goals. So, I do think that there are some things that districts can do that require courage and also require us changing the way we do things in order to give every single student an opportunity to be successful and not making excuses for them that lead them down a road that we wouldn't send our own children down.
3: I just um you're the superintendent. Mm-hmm. You've got how many layers between you and that child? Oh, <laughs> for whom you there are have. a lot. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So you've got, um, I'm just, maybe we can talk about this as we go along. I mean, you've got the kids as learners, but you have multiple layers of learners. Mm-hmm. yeah. And there are all these issues about, you know, you say policies. yeah. And there's issues of autonomy. Mm-hmm. Um, you've got to take away f- a fair amount of autonomy from a lot of the folks in those layers between you and that child in order to...
2: yeah.
3: To have things work the way you want them on the I front think,
2: line. I think it's, um, in this term, I did not create, one of our former CEOs, John claude Bazaar coined what he, he, he called it bounded autonomy. And I think it comes from this belief, and I said this, some of the people who worked with me at Westinghouse will remember this, I would always make the case, and I believe this to be true, that you can have 10 teachers working extremely hard, doing great work, but all working on something different. And you can take a similar school with 10 teachers working on the same thing with intentionality. And I guarantee you that in the place where you have that coherence and that intentionality in the same North Star, you're gonna get better results overall. That doesn't mean that out of that group of Ten that you might not, you know, get a few rock stars, but you really have to be intentional about that work. Chicago is a large district, and one of the keys to our success is actually the principal, the role of the principal in their autonomy. Most principals in CPS enjoy a degree of autonomy that is not seen throughout other school systems in the country. They have control over their own budget. They have control over the curriculum that they choose. There's so many, they pick their staff. That's not the case in every district, but you can't, give full autonomy without a clear uh, uh, North Star, and you have to provide a plan that everybody can access and have entry points based on where uh, where they need to enter into that plan. And then there are gonna be some people that are special. There are gonna be people who can do it without the district, there are gonna be people who can do it without the universal this and that, but if we leave it to chance, this is where I come from, if we leave it to chance, if people are left to their own devices, we just get a bunch of disparate and uncoordinated efforts and what ends up happening is the talented people who go into education end up leaving because they don't see the progress that's being made, the progress that the schools and school districts
0: we're gonna talk about today have been able to see. Well, so I I do wonder, do you as superintendent, do you, try and elevate or identify schools that are doing better within the district and try and and if so, how do you help other people learn from them?
2: I think we, we always want to celebrate progress. I would say that's something we could do a better job of. I'm looking at some of the principals and network chiefs in the room. I think our network chiefs do a really good job of um, uh, talking about individual schools and comparing their progress within network. And then we, of course, have schools that we lift up for a variety of reasons, a program they may be administering here uh, that we really want to highlight. Um, but I think that my approach, and this could be right or wrong, um, and it could be the result of me being in CPS my entire life, is I've been working extremely hard to make CPS one school district. I think there's one danger in a large district this size is that when individuals, whether that be teachers or principals, don't see themselves as part of a system, um, there's this phenomenon where people love their school but hate the district, and I think that can only exist when we're operating in isolation. So I've really tried to lead in a way where we try to bring all 660 schools, which sometimes is successful, a lot of times not so much um, but really to think about us as one district because we are stronger together and one school's failure is the failure of the district and um, similarly the success of other schools should be celebrated and lifted up as well
0: so so we're going to go from CPS with 660 schools to a one a tiny little one uh school district in oklahoma um and Well, we'll talk about why I choose it um, in a bit, but um, I wanna play a clip from when an administrator and a leader, um, uh, an administrator and a teacher at at Lane, Oklahoma, told me about one of the starting points for the improvement of the district, and they're talking about their previous superintendent.
1: His background was secondary, so he just assumed, from being a high school science teacher, that Basically you were a babysitter. Yeah, it was an experience. An experience. You were just a babysitter and you, you know the teaching important. didn't actually start until they got much older. And And he that, started
2: visiting other schools like Cottonwood that were doing so well and seeing what the importance they were placing on their early childhood programs and coming back and saying, Oh, okay. You really need that foundation.
0: We do need you do need this and you're you know, and started getting getting that support in there and I think that really turned a lot of things around. So That superintendent's aha moment was when he went to a more successful district, and we realized that 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 district was successful in part because it took early childhood and reading instruction, early reading instruction, really seriously. And... So we're shifting ground a little bit, but I know you also come from a secondary background. And I wondered if your react, what your reaction to that was. Did you have to learn a lot about early learning? I mean, did you ha- have to have an uh, aha moment around um, early reading instruction? Well, I have aha moments every day.
2: That's the nature <laughs> of the job, but, but not so much in this space. So I chose uh, secondary education really for a practical reason. I wanted to be a college professor, so it, it wasn't like I thought Teaching started in ninth grade. And if I'm drawing on my own experiences, I am very um, uh, intentional about saying that I started in Head Start and not pre K because Head Start was one of the first programs that, you know, there are people that have studied all the, you know, things that happen with implementation. But I remember those early experiences. Um, What I also remember is that my parents, in particular my father, taught us how to read every single one of my siblings before we went to school. And you know how you don't remember a lot of stuff, you know, from birth to five? I vividly remember that instruction because um, it wasn't Sesame Street-esque, it was drill and kill, you're gonna learn how to do this. But I say all that to say, I've always known that reading was the key. And that was another theme that I saw in all of these districts. If we get distracted, and if we look for you know, the sizzle or the next big thing, we lose focus. In all schools that are high performing, you can't walk into a high-performing school with authentic growth and progress and not see a literature-rich environment and not see an environment where kids are encouraged to read or taught to read for the love of learning and not just to pass the test or to complete an assignment. And so. It's unfortunate. I can't comment on you know what the last uh, uh, package talked about. Um, but I do think anytime we try to separate the importance of literacy and language acquisition and what happens between birth to seven, We set kids up for failure because all the research around um, learning is clear that much of how you think and think about yourself as a learner, as a student, as a scholar happens in that early stage. And if we miss that opportunity to lay a strong foundation, we are going to spend the next 10, 15 years with kids trying to make up for lost time.
0: Well, Dr. Duke, this is really this is your bailiwick. Um, can you react? I don't I don't even feel I have to ask a real question. <laughs>
1: no, I mean everything she said is right on. We know from research that opportunity gaps in the US start at birth. We know that high quality early childhood education is not evenly distributed. And so we set kids up from the day that they walk into kindergarten, they're already trying to make up for our society's failure to provide an equitable education. Um, so absolutely, we got to think about those birth to seven um, years and. Many areas are important, of course, social-emotional development, literacy development, and so on, but, but uh, reading is right there because we know that reading doesn't just affect your achievement in reading, it affects your achievement in science and social studies and mathematics because all of those domains are mediated by the ability to actually read. So, um, so certainly a focus on early literacy and early childhood in general is really important. And one of the things I'm wondering about, I, I'm in a lot of districts where they put their weakest teachers in the early grades. Their Logic is, well, we don't start, you know, state testing till grade three, so we're going to put our best people in grade three, grade four. Um, as you might imagine, that rubs me uh, quite the wrong way, but I'm wondering what have you done in the district or what, what have any of you
2: seen that has kind of counteracted that tendency? Well, I can talk about what we're trying to do. Maybe you've seen people no, I've Did seen people right. putting
3: their strongest teachers in the, in the, yeah. in the, in the tested <laughs> grades, yeah. that's what I've seen.
2: Yeah, I think um, we actually, uh, the, the, through the Harvard PELP program, which our district participated in for the past two summers, we actually put together a plan to address exactly what you said. Like so many districts, large districts, you know, Chicago put a stake in the ground and said that we were going to focus on early childhood education, and we have invested not millions, hundreds of millions of dollars in that. And aha moments or learnings that came out of that is I didn't realize how fierce the debate was about what kids should be doing in early childhood. You know, there are people who think they should play and do the things that were kind of described in that package all day, and, and, and they, it makes sense, right? And then there are people who think that, you know, if we don't use this to ensure that they are readers or early readers then it's a failure and we're not getting our return on that investment. Not my term, other terms, that I've that's not mine, I've heard that phrase used. So one of the things, CPS is still committed to early childhood education um, and we have um, actually committed to universal uh, pre-K for four-year-olds, but what we're also working on is how do we make sure there's the right balance in those programs so that it is a, an enriching program, and a program that meets students' needs both socially and academically, um, but also doesn't turn it into a test prep or a program where they're just you know, being pumped with a bunch of information that they don't understand. So um, one of the actions um, that came out of that was really working with our principals about our priorities, and that if you really want to improve your school, you should put your best teachers, if you want a long-term plan and not just a short blip on the school quality report card, it would be to put your strongest teachers in the earlier grades, Um, but I would be lying if I said we've been successful at making that shift. We are early in that conversation, but because of the high stakes accountability, I think most principals feel like I have to put my strongest teacher in third grade because that's the benchmark grade, and seventh grade because that's selective enrollment. And so that tension between accountability and, building a strong foundation, I think is present in elementary school. It's also present in our high schools as well.
0: Um, So I wanna play another clip uh, with another aha moment from another superintendent, this time from the former superintendent of Lexington, Massachusetts, which vaulted to the top of the country under his leadership. The starting point for improvement came about a year after He arrived in Lexington, and I should note that Lexington is part of a long-running voluntary integration program in the country. Um, It's the longest-running voluntary integration program in the country with thousands of African-Americans and students and Hispanic students traveling from Boston to suburban districts. Superintendent Paul Ash rather casually asked an administrator what percentage of the African-American students Coming into Lexington were receiving special education services in high school? And the answer was 49%. And here's his reaction.
3: And I was just just I jogged almost on the floor because the typical percent at the high school level was around 15%, 16%. And I asked her, I said, Do you really believe that three times the number of Boston students are disabled than the resident population? And I was quite Intentional about using the word disabled because it is a disability law. She says, no, no, they're not disabled. So that began a conversation about, well, how did this happen that we had tripled the number of African-American students in special education in the high school than the resident population? And that opened up to me a whole area of analysis that I was not even thinking about in a community that deeply cared about all of its students and anti-racism programs it was inherently racist. It was It was institutional racism, but with no ill intent.
0: So, Dr. Ferguson, uh, you think I've veered from reading instruction. I have not, actually, but we're, we're going to get to that in a minute. So, Dr. Ferguson, one of the things that really struck me about this was here was this superintendent faced with a piece of data. And instead of hiding from it or excusing it, he confronted it. You've spent a fair amount of time in and around Lexington and lots of similar school districts, and I wonder what your reaction was.
3: Well, um one thing, th- th- he, it, was a, it was a moral affront to him. It was an ethical issue. And when he came in and he saw that a really high percentage of these students who were being bused in from Boston were in special education. And so in most places where you see at the school level or the district level, a lot of energy come to, to bear on making things better, it's that ethical affront. <laughs> is where it starts with him. And he didn't know how to do it. He, he hadn't figured it out. In fact, he called us when they they were just starting, and I was at the Achievement Gap Initiative, and he called me, and he said, we've we got to move the needle in, in Lexington. We want to work on this. And he came to a conference I had that year. And then over the next seven years, he kind of groped his way along, and they discovered things. He sent his teachers out to other districts to see how they did things. He kept the pressure on. They figured it out, and they got to the place where 96% of their African-American 10th graders were proficient in English and 100% of their African-American 10th graders were proficient in, no, 100% in in English and 96% in math, proficient. And so, um, now it was a small district. You know, they have one high school, so you can wrap wrap your arms around it. But it was about figuring out how to diagnose the students' learning needs and organize themselves relentlessly to address those needs, to make life a little uncomfortable for the adults who didn't want to come along. It was not all, you know, lovey-lovey the whole time through on this, but um, that's what it was. And just a a note on the special education piece of it. I mean, this is a district that probably had very few students that actually had disabilities, (laughs) okay? And they were using their special education classrooms as a way to address the kids who probably actually did factually come in a bit behind the typical Lexington student. And so if we were to back up and have a longer conversations, but ideally how would you have that kind of a district operate? I think there's a lot of subtlety in the conversation for how you would do it. And I actually don't think they that substantially cut the special education rate even though they got everybody to proficiency. And really the. The question is is how do you organize your district in a way that provides the best quality teaching and learning to kids? Uh, Special education is a label (laughs) that goes on things and we shouldn't assume a lot about what that means in terms of kids' instructional experiences. Um, And I'll stop with that, but (laughs) this is a a whole can of worms we could sit here and unbundle for a while.
0: Well, so one of the things, so Superintendent Ash started with this realization of, of the data and he, was led eventually, and you're right, there was a lot of stop and start and false starts and and trial and error, but he eventually did come back to reading instruction. I told you I was getting back to it. Um, This is because when he investigated, he found out that what happened in Lexington was that if kids encountered any issue whatsoever in learning how to read in kindergarten or first grade, there was really no help for them except for special education services and once they were in the special education program they were they never left. But Dr. Duke, this is kind of your bailiwick, right? So <laughs> what was your what's your reaction to that to that kind of uh, phenomenon?
1: Well, I mean, I think the instinct is right that um, we can substantially reduce the proportion of kids who ever need extra services by providing a better, higher quality education in what many of you would know as tier one, or in your regular classroom instruction. Um, and I've been using this metaphor recently. Bear with me for a minute. That uh, you know, if you if you ran your dishwasher, you put a bunch of dirty dishes in your dishwasher, you run your dishwasher. You open it up and you've got, you know, a few dishes that didn't quite get clean. Well, you take those dishes out, you put them in the sink, you'd give them an extra scrubbing, and now all your dishes are clean. But if you ran your dishwasher and 50% of your dishes come out still dirty, 60% in some of our schools, 85% of your dishes are still dirty, then you see that the problem here is not the dishes, it's the dishwasher. And so setting aside that we don't wanna compare children to dirty dishes, hopefully you can get the larger point here which is that when you have lots of kids who need extra supports, tier two, tier three interventions, you're doing something wrong at the classroom level. And so I think that realization for him um, to not just think of this as a problem um, around what's happening in special ed or in other extra supports, but what's happening in regular classroom instruction, I think that's a really important point. And we do have lots of studies that show, for example, um, Frank Felatino and Donna Scanlon's research shows that if you provide high-quality small group instruction in kindergarten, you substantially reduce the percentage of kids who ever get diagnosed as having a reading disability? Yeah. So I think he was on the right track in that respect.
2: Just I, uh, I was going to bring up MTSS in the the tier one piece, but a second um, story that ties well with this is. Um, in Chicago public schools, we had a similar uh, reality. Um, it wasn't 49% of our African American students were uh, diagnosed as having a special—I mean, a student is a student with disability. But what we did is we saw a correlation between students who were uh, English language learners and the in them being labeled as students with disabilities. And the number there was definitely overrepresentation in that group when we cut the data uh, across so many different dimensions. And I think that uh, what this shows or uh, underscores is the importance of data. I know sometimes, and we are definitely guilty of it in CPS, we collect a lot of data. And sometimes it can be a distraction, but it can also sometimes be used for good. And because of that, we were able to shine a light on the fact that students, instead of being um, rightfully tested and provided with the additional services that they needed in order to both you know, respect and retain their uh, home language, but also learn English so that they can access the work that was happening in the school, we were trying to push them out of those programs as quickly as possible, test them in English, um, provide all these different services as a way to kind of move them out of the mainstream so that we could, deal with you know the students in the classroom um, who didn't need these additional supports. And so I think that um, districts can learn a lot by looking at data and really looking beyond the surface and some of the things that are apparent and seeing how are some students, whether that um, you know, sometimes these are students that have multiple labels. And so really thinking about how those labels, especially when it's compounded, really hurts students and sets them back. And because of that, um, we were able to work with our schools. We revised our bilingual education policy. Um, which I can talk about later but the point was we reduced the number of students who were both labeled as a student with disability and an EL um, and really focused on helping them acquire the English language and not you know basically casting them off and saying that they have a disability because English wasn't their first language.
0: That's, That's an incredibly powerful right. yeah. um, piece and of information. And it's a
2: process, right? I mean, the right. numbers are still, still over-representation. But we know this to be a problem now, and it's something that we're working on.
3: But, well, to what degree are some kids being assigned a special education just because they're a little bit behind, and the teachers who assign them just think they'll get the extra attention?
2: I think, I think you get some of that. I also think some parents believe that. I've had conversations with parents um, um, asking for my advice, you know, uh, personally. And I tell them, you you should advocate for these resources if you truly believe in the IEP team and professionals have sat there and said this is what your child needs in order to be successful. But don't go in because this is a, a – this, this can – be problematic for your child if this is not the right um, intervention in order to support them. And I do believe that there are some parents who believe the extra support, the aid, and those things are going to help their children. And for some students, it absolutely helps them. And for other students, it can actually set them back in ways that um, could be inappropriate. And so it uh, it really behooves everyone to rely on the expertise of the IEP team. It's designed that way for a reason. You have teachers and professionals at the table Making a collective decision. Um, but again, at, at the district level, if I'm taking a step back, we had to put better systems in place so that we didn't see overrepresentation of black boys and Latino boys or overrepresentation of ELs. And these things are still issues in our district, but because of the use of data, we're able to point them out and have, um, you know, and network chiefs, um, our Office of Language and Culture in this case, can use that data to work directly with schools to uh, make
0: the types of changes that they need to make. So I'm, I'm going to keep us on reading instruction a little bit longer, but in, so in season two I show, I, I go to three districts and um, I show how educators pay attention to all the elements of reading instruction. So phonemic awareness, phonics, um, fluency, building vocabulary, and background knowledge. That's not work that is really done in all districts. And, um, and I wonder Why? Like, why isn't that done in all districts?
1: Well, I think among the panel, you'll probably come up with a whole lot of reasons. I mean, certainly one is that we have too few educators in the U.S. who really know how to teach reading. Um, we need to take a little responsibility for that at higher education level. I think we also have to take responsibility for the fact that we've designed uh, our systems poorly in this country. Think about a first grade teacher with a diverse group of, say, 30 first graders with all different kinds of needs around literacy and the challenge of educating all of them well in reading. That's significant, right? I think it's comparable to what we ask an ER physician to do. Um, You know, an ER physician has multiple cases to coordinate, has lots of content knowledge they have to bring to bear, has to understand a lot of different aspects of um, the the reasons that would bring someone into an ER in the first place. And yet in the US, an ER physician gets four years of undergrad, four years of med school, four years of residency, and and not unlikely, another couple years of an ER fellowship. We get uh, about two years Uh, If we're lucky, if we're not going through an alternative certification program that has less time, we have about two years to get that first grade teacher ready to go. And so uh, we really have set up a system that's going to make it very difficult to provide a really multifaceted, high quality education to to every kid um, around reading. So that's where the districts really come in, and the more successful districts and schools, in my experience, are ones that are investing in that ongoing professional development that's very data driven so that, you know, the process of learning to be a great teacher of reading doesn't stop when you walk out the doors of your college, but in fact continues throughout their education.
0: Yeah, I wonder how you think, I mean, yeah. these districts, these districts, like, they have maybe 100 teachers. Mm-hmm. You've got 30,000. <laughs> <laughs> <Yeah. laughs> Not all of them are elementary, no, but, no. but I mean, how do you even think about improving the knowledge of your Early yeah, te- I think reading to teachers- answer the
2: first part of the question, it's hard. That's the short, I mean, that's the real answer. Um, we have, just in my tenure in CPS, have you know embarked on so many different reading initiatives. I think I've seen every single program you can think of. There is a wealth of knowledge in the city, um, in our universities, in the school system, around um, high-quality literacy instruction. And I, I would even say that I have observed the district create a professional development plan where hundreds or thousands of teachers were brought in and trained to do something. But I think in reality, those of us that have really been teachers in the classroom know it's really hard to do it every single day with fidelity. So I'll give you one example. Uh, A few years ago, we started, maybe about five or six years ago, we started to prioritize the reading block. And the goal was to teach, you know, uh, phonics, phonemic awareness, uh, reading, comprehension, writing every single day. And we created a bunch of tools and resources and the networks were, you know, organized to go out and make sure this is happening. And there was a system to report it back and people were doing it, but they were doing it. And I think that if sometimes we make these things really complicated when they're really simple. And I know one time Dr. Tatum was doing a speech about uh, literacy, and he just he gave a stat which I may mess up, um, but essentially he talked about the fact that students in CPS, on average, read less than you know a couple of pages a day and write less than a page of authentic text a day. And CPS is not an outlier in that. And so we can create these complicated and sophisticated programs and invest millions of dollars in teaching teachers how to do it, but it's really as simple as how often do we require students to read in our classes for a sustained period of time, and how often do we require them to create and construct authentic knowledge, i.e. through writing? That does not happen very often. It's hard to teach, it's hard to do, And if I'm being honest, as a teacher, it's incredibly hard to grade. I was a high school teacher with 140 students. Imagine trying to grade that and revise it every day. So I think it's a really complicated issue um, with some very specific ways in which to address it. But I don't think it's some famous program or revolutionary program that we're gonna pull out the sky. I think it's doing what we know works and probably the way we were all educated in one way, shape, or form that really is gonna help our students to become uh, better readers and um, also better writers.
3: This reminds me when we, the project we did a decade ago on exemplary high schools, Brockton High School, uh, decided that they were gonna focus on literacy. They had their teachers go out and you know, talk to consultants, read some stuff, but then they divided it into teams and they came up ultimately with the idea that there were five dimensions and I forget what it was totally. It was, you know, vocabulary, comprehension, writing and so on. They had a chart in every room of the school that had those features of the literacy and the writing and reading and thinking process on the chart. Every teacher in the building had to give one, at least one serious writing assignment per school year and grade it using the rubric that they had come up with for what high quality writing was for for high school students. And so that kind of a process, you can imagine that being replicated across high schools because you weren't telling teachers what the assignment had to be. But they taught their teachers how to grade those things using the rubric. And then the big piece was the teachers had to sit with their supervisor and review the grading that they had done of those assignments and get feedback about the degree to which they had used the rubric appropriately or not. So we can imagine things that go from preschool all the way up through high school that that play out the the literacy, reading, writing, thinking uh, piece of the curriculum.
1: I think in both of your responses what I'm hearing is prioritizing. You know, we're not, not trying to do everything under the sun well every day, but what are the few things that in these particular contexts are gonna be instructional non-negotiables? They're gonna happen no matter what without debate. And it interests me that in medicine, uh, public health, lots of fields, there are these non-negotiables, right? So in the United States, if somebody walks into a physician's office with diabetes, for example, there are certain things that physician has to do um, and if they don't, it's malpractice. But in education, we don't have a strong tradition of that. So one teacher can decide that they're not going to read aloud to kids every day, or in a in a district I unfortunately worked with recently, they're going to not teach writing because these kids air quotes are not ready for writing instruction. So all kinds of malpractice can happen in education with with little consequence. Um, so what I hear in both of your responses is you know certain things in these school contexts are non-negotiable. It's, it's not a matter of autonomy. It's a matter of these things are supported by research and we're going to prioritize them and we're going to do them.
3: That word, non-negotiable, was a theme in our study of exemplary schools, uh-huh. right? There were certain things that when folks first mobilized to decide what are we going to try to do to make things better, there was a certain core set of things that were just not negotiable. That we believe in. Yeah. yeah.
0: Getting people to the point of non-negotiable is really hard, though. Which, which leads us to the next topic, which is leadership, right? I mean, you, you have to have a certain amount of leadership to bring people along uh, to, right? Um, so I know this is an issue really close to your heart. You are a principal now, um, a superintendent, and you defined a huge part of your job as ensuring that every school has a principal who can lead. I want to play here a clip. Uh, from the episode on Seaford Delaware in season two. Uh, Superintendent Dave Parrington had just told me that he consi- he also considers school leaders the absolutely crucial in, in uh, district improvement and I asked him what he looked for in a school leader and uh, I want you to react to what he said. Yeah.
3: One of the characteristics to me that that's the most important is I never stop learning. I can get better at what it is that I'm doing. And acceptance beyond acceptance. A strong belief in equity that this is what it's about, that you truly believe. And it's not just a, a, a word that, that you like to use, but it's in practice every day. And you can demonstrate that.
0: It's the point of schools.
2: It is. That's a, that, you're right. That's why, that's why we do exist. But somewhere along the way, we've forgotten that all
3: students should have access to a quality education. You know, our, our slogan is success for all students. And it's not just a slogan. It's a belief. that That That's what we look at.
2: So, well, um, a few things. So my direct reaction to that is there's a lot of alignment in our thinking. I think what I heard is Good leaders do a few things. Number one, they truly believe in all students. And I know everybody's heard that term before. It's overused. It's on every brochure in every district from each, you know, the east to the west coast. But in practice, we have all, I hope we have all been lucky enough to observe a person who truly believes in students and are relentless And that's a key word because it's one thing to believe. There there are no shortage of people who believe. But the people who have the courage and the ability to be relentlessly focused on making sure kids get what they deserve, I think that's the piece that we have to bring to bear. I know when I led schools, I won't look at the people who had the pleasure of working with me. I think they would describe my leadership style as relentless. And it really went back to this notion that I just fundamentally believe that all kids can do it. I don't care what you know uh, they bring to the table, their background, what happened before. We have to address those things, but I really believe they can do it. But if we're being honest, that belief and that intentionality and that relentlessness is not always shared. Um, I think the notion of continuous improvement that he pointed out was extremely important. And that's something that I really learned and kind of hone skills around continuous improvement through the UIC program, because I kind of always felt like that after I met a goal, I wanted to do something else, but didn't really have the language around that. And more importantly, didn't have the language around how you use that in a school, because it's easy to look down the street and say, we're doing better than this school or that school. But how do you really make sure that you're operating at you know a, an optimal level or an exemplary level in your individual context? And I think that's always a struggle. I think the other thing is that, um, similar to uh, what Dr. Ferguson pointed out earlier, which is that you can operationalize these things in schools as well as in the district. And for CPS, one of the things that we have done Um, through our partnership with the Chicago Public Education Fund and our partners through the CLC, the Chicago Leadership Collaborative, which UIC is a part of, is really try to name what are the competencies, right? It can't be just this inspirational speech or fluffy language. Like, what do those things look like? What do they look like along the continuum on the rubric? And then how do we train people on that and assess them on that? And then also, how do we train local school councils uh, made up of parents in our district to pick principals who have those competencies so that their school can improve or stay on track and so in CPS I would say that uh, the progress that we've made in a large district really uh, is progress that our teachers as well as our principals own because a lot of it happened individually locally in schools um, because of principal leadership and teacher leadership and parent leadership through the local school council but it would not have occurred if we didn't codify what good leadership looks like and create systems to support that and so I think Think that's the work that we're really proud of, and I think if I was giving advice to other districts, I would say pay attention to school leadership because it really um, can have a dramatic uh, impact on performance in the school in the district.
3: I come in. The um, as I I don't work at schools that much anymore, but when I did, there was part of it was the high expectations mm-hmm. belief, but the places that were really doing well, the, the leaders had a certain type of intellectual discipline. Right? A bunch of what you just discov- dis- dis- described was a matter of being focused and really being on top of it. If I went in to do professional development and the principal came in and introduced me and left the room, mm-hmm. I'd know work. nothing's going to happen. <laughs> <Nothing>. <laughs> Same thing, you go in to work with the principals, the superintendent comes in and says, hello, introduces you and leaves, you know, nothing's going to mm-hmm. happen. You need the leader to be intellectually more on yeah. top of it than anybody else is, Absolutely. right? And so that is so key. I mean, when I listened to the podcast about Chicago that Karen did in, is it phase one or? (laughs) Yeah, season one. Season 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 one of the podcast series, the thing that stuck with me the most was, first of all, there's what happened here at the university and in in the principal core, training principals. But then you've got these school councils where the schools can choose their principals. Mm -hmm. But then those now with the new regime, the principals have to be chosen from a preselected group. And that preselected group is one where there's got to be, in order to get into that group, there's got to be evidence that you can lead adults. And so I'm curious if you can say a little bit more about what the evidence is that's, that that gets you into that group. I mean, what if I want to be a principal in Chicago, what do I have to be, be able to demonstrate to get myself on that list? Well,
2: qu- quite a few things. I'm not going to give away um, all of the particulars. And- Dr. Hightower would kill me, she manages that program. But we do look for a few things, one, uh, people who are focused and well-versed on continuous improvement, people who understand systems thinking and how to lead um, change management at the school level, people who understand um, student-level data, but also how to make that actionable in a way that uh, encourages high-performing, I mean, uh, high-quality education and not just people who can read data slides and you know talk about drill and kill. Um, the other piece is how they engage with the community, which I think, you uh, rightfully pointed out, this is unique in Chicago in that our local school councils, made up predominantly of parents, of students in the schools, select the principal. And so the district took the step to make sure that the, the pool of candidates um, uh, embodied uh embody these competencies but really believing the that it's critically important that the parents buy into the school leadership because that's another one of those pieces that Ron Edmonds lifted up in the effective schools movement he talked about the role of parents and them being involved in 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 some way shape or form in educational process that these things combined really lead to high quality schools and so It would have been easy for us to look at the state statute that says local school councils pick the principal and just say have at it and you know as long as you have a state license you can be a principal but we took that extra step to make sure that people embody the competencies and the characteristics that we know are going to lead to effective school management. Um, And then we also spend time through our uh, uh, local school council relations office training our parents on that because one of the things that we found is our parents would pick individuals for a variety of reasons, they would look at you know, demographics, the, if a candidate looked like the students that they were serving, sometimes that was good enough, and I think that representation matters, and it definitely is something that I think should be taken into consideration, and it is, whether I think it should be or not, but we also gotta make sure that people are competent and can do the work um, that, it's gonna be, that is needed in order to move the school forward, and so creating that framework allows us to have clarity with our university partners, with our parents, and with our district leaders to make sure we're getting people who have the right stuff leading um, our schools and leading our kids.
0: So the the University of Illinois Chicago's Urban Education Program has been a national leader in the training of principals, not only preparing leaders like Dr. Jackson, but also helping institutions around the country think of how to revamp their own programs. And partly to capitalize on that, um, the Wallace Foundation provided money to six large districts to provide, uh, to build pipelines of principals. And this past spring, the RAND Corporation issued a report that linked that improved principal preparation with student achievement gains, which actually I found astounding because it was really quite early in the process to be able to, to see student achievement gains. Between Chicago and the six districts Wallace funded, can we start to think about principal development as a serious lever for district improvement? I mean, does that make sense?
3: I once proposed, it was on a, speaking out of class here, it was on a a working group in Massachusetts.
0: It's nobody's listening. No, yeah, right.
3: (laughs) We actually proposed that there should be a project to go around the state, identify the absolutely most effective schools, do case studies on how they operate, and then require school leaders twice a year to go to the seminars to learn those cases then have uh, circuit riders who would visit their schools to see how they were running their schools. And if they weren't using those ideas, why not? Did they have better ideas? If not, you know, some pressure on there. Um, and we were told that, well, there are already uh, organizations around the state who are responsible for training principals. We, we didn't really need that, <laughs> right? <laughs> and so.
0: Well, they're all doing so well. Yeah.
3: Right. And so, so it's a great idea to, to work harder on this. But you have to realize there are some politics uh, there's some folks who already have the turf to to train uh, our school leaders, yeah. but it's worth doing the politics because, as you are saying, there are payoffs if yeah. you can get it done.
2: I, I, think, um, I think that's right. I think politics play a big role. One of the things we've been able to do in, in Chicago, and it's not perfect, but I do recognize that our partnership with the fund, our partnership with our universities has we, there's a level of trust there that I think has helped us to advance this work, but also accountability across those different groups that I think has helped CPS to stand out. And I think if anybody needs to be convinced about the importance of the principal as a lever for change, um, they should look to Chicago because it's no secret that there has been a lot of turnover in the superintendency, something I'm trying to stop. <laughs> Make sure everybody heard that one. <laughs> But there's no way to explain the sustained progress with graduation rates and uh, scholarship acquisition and test scores, et cetera, without looking at what's happening at the local level. It's not the magical superintendent or the superman or superwoman coming in and changing things. It really is about having that sustainability at the school level. And just the last plug on data through our partnership, uh, with the fund, one of the things that we were able to look at is principal transition. I mean, this is the data that we're able to um, take a look at, and one of the things that we notice is that even when uh, when there's a transition, if the principal leaves and another high quality principal comes in after that person, there is almost it's, cer- it's almost certain that you're going to see a drop in student achievement. And so, how do we really uh, make sure LSCs understand that? Because sometimes when they don't you know, like a principal or things are, you know, there's a rough patch. Really getting people to see that, that sustainability and longevity matters. Now that doesn't mean you don't keep, you keep people in there who aren't doing what they need to do, but it means that there's a great degree of responsibility when you're making a decision to select and retain individuals that leave school. So I think Chicago is a good test case for that because we've had so much churn at the top. There's no way to explain the progress that we've made um, without looking at our principals and the stability that they've provided. Um, can I just make schools. sure I
3: understood what you just said? Yeah. You said when a high quality principal is is there doing a good job and yeah. they leave you said and another high quality yeah. person comes in. Yeah. So you're saying even if the person who replaces them is high quality, yes. you still get a drop. Yep. Yeah. Okay.
2: And I mean, not to, I don't want to misquote the date. although we have the CEO here so she can clear it up. Uh, Even when there's transition with the principal and the assistant principal, I mean, these are things that seem natural and people think we have everything together. The point I'm making here is not about the quality of one person over the other, but the transition causes a disruption. And it's a disruption that we have to pay attention to. And CPS paid attention to this. Before we started focusing like a laser on principal retention, um, our uh, average departure rate at the end of the year uh, was around 75%, which meant at least 25% of the principals left. Last year, it was under 10% at 9%, and that is because of the work that our uh, principal quality office is doing in partnership with the Public Education Fund. And again, you don't get those kind of results without paying attention to the data, tracking the data, and more importantly, creating programming and processes to intervene when you see data that's alarming, like 25% of the principals leaving every year. And of course, that number, was higher in some of our low-income low areas.
3: Can I point out just one more thing? Karen, during, in season one on the Chicago piece, you talked about how the state, once they saw what was happening in Chicago and the fact that principals who'd come through the program here were producing better results, the state decertified all their principal training programs, right?
0: Talk about a turf uh, talk war. Talk about systemic yeah. change in, <laughs> in a policy way
3: at the state level. I thought that, that was a pretty big deal.
0: Right? That, that, so change can that, happen. Yeah, I think that was a huge deal. Right. Um, I mean, people in this room uh, are much uh, more able to talk about it than I am, but it just seemed huge to me. To, and and to take on such a big – you're talk, talking about all these principal preparation programs mm-hmm. throughout the state. Yeah. Uh, and we know principal preparation programs are cash cows. Yeah right? You know, you take in the tuition money, you spend a little bit on adjuncts, and you send the rest of the money over to the engineering program where they really need the money, right, (laughs) or the medical program. Um, They're cash cows for universities. So this was a very... I, I don't know how they got it done, honestly. When,
2: when we first started looking at creating uh, the elig- eligibility pool, I think at the time about 8,000 people in CPS had a, principal, a license to be a principal, 8,000. And I think the pool probably at its height had no more than 500 people. Um, that were qualified to actually lead. So how do you <laughs> adjust for quality in that way? And that doesn't mean everybody in that group of 8,000 apply for eligibility, but many of them did. But it just goes to show you um, that the state was really churning out a lot of principal licensures. Um, and, and in some cases, the people were not yet at the level that we thought they needed to be at in order to, to lead our schools.
0: So this has been an amazing conversation and I could kind of go on for hours. I, we, we started beforehand and we could probably keep going, but I just, but we can't. So, uh, so I just want to ask each of you if you have any final thoughts to, to kind of wrap up what you, what you have been thinking, hearing, talking about. Shall we start with you, Dr. Du?
1: Okay. Sure. Um, well, I think you know a, a few themes that really came through this conversation that I think are important, um, the one we were just on, leadership mattering and being a place that we need to put more serious attention is one. I think another is this idea that we want some autonomy, but there are also some non-negotiables, and we need to come to some agreement about what those are. Um, A third theme for sure was the theme of of working on equity and part of working on equity is starting early and being particularly concerned with areas like literacy that cut across success or lack of success in many, many different domains. So I think those are some key themes that came up in this conversation.
3: And I could say she said them all, so there's nothing left (laughs) for me to say. But I'll just, um, no, I think for me, when I've just been just so impressed with, with Chicago and the fact that the state learned from Chicago uh, is an existence proof for the proposition that large systems can change to bring about more effective leadership. And then the qualities of leadership that matter so much, uh, just the simple notion of heart and mind (laughs) captures a lot. It's It's an ethical proposition. It's about a moral commitment. But it's also about intellectual discipline and focus and actually knowing something about the work that needs to be done and then just being totally intentional. Uh, over the years, I've just seen people hit what they aim at. (laughs) And whatever you really pay close attention to, you aim at it, you you usually will get that done. Uh, But leadership is um, the the magic bullet.
2: (laughs) Yeah, I think everything has already been said. you know, just a reminder that this work is incredibly difficult and hard, and I think it's critically important that um, whether you're in a small district or a large district, it's really important to work with your partners, whether that be folks in the um, post-secondary space, philanthropic community, community-based organizations. Um, anyone who is really trying to do this work in a serious manner um, should obviously utilize all of the gifts and resources within the district, but pay close attention to the partners um, that you know occupied a space around the district because I really think that that's the key to bringing about long,
0: sustained change. So thank you so much for all, all of you taking time out of what I know are unbelievably busy schedules to help us sort through the naughty questions of whether and how school districts can improve Each of you understands the complexity of the work of improving school districts, but you also bring this clarity of vision about the larger meaning of the work, which is what we started with. We're talking about ensuring that all children find opportunities in their public schools that allow them to surpass what their families and neighborhoods can provide. That's hugely important to them as individuals, but it has a larger importance for all of us because we are talking about our future fellow citizens and thus about the health of our democracy and our nation so thank you again to all of you for the work you do cuz you're helping build our nation that's my that's my opinion anyway anyway thank you so much thanks to the audience That ends the conversation we held on October 8, 2019 before a live audience at the University of Illinois Chicago at an event co-hosted by EdTrust and the UIC's Center for Urban Education Leadership and its EDD program in Urban Education Leadership. It was the kickoff event for the second season of Extraordinary Districts, and I want to thank Shelby Cosner, director of UIC's Center for Urban Education Leadership, and Cynthia Barron, coordinator of the EDD program in urban education leadership at UIC. They were terrific partners in putting this event together. I hope you'll subscribe to Extraordinary Districts so that you can find all the episodes from season one and are notified of new episodes as they come out. And leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your podcasts. Your review will help others find it. If you think this is a valuable podcast, I hope you'll consider making a donation to the Education Trust so that we can keep finding and learning from Extraordinary Districts. Go to www.edtrust.org slash Extraordinary Districts. I want to thank Overdeck Family Foundation for their support for the second season and the Wallace Foundation for their support of the first season and the kickoff event at UIC. This is Karen Chenoweth from the Education Trust. See you next time.